As you remain standing, shall we pray together? Father God, we uh, thank you for our morning of worship this morning. We pray, Lord, that as we come to now to study your word in Mark chapter 8, we would be able to hear your voice and know what it means for us in our hearts. Amen. Please sit down. You'll need uh, Mark in chapter 8, but um, open in front of you. It's on page 1012 in the Bibles. Now, sometimes we know, don't we, that a partial understanding can be far more dangerous than no understanding at all. Um, a primary school class was talking about uh, safety at home one day. And after the end of the lesson, the children were sent home to go and write about what they'd learned during the day. Hence, the mother of one girl was slightly worried when she read, Don't put your finger in an electrical socket unless you have an adult with you. Mark 8 contains a similar problem of partial understanding. In verse 14, just look, have a look at that, Jesus asks his disciples, do you still not see or understand? Then in verses 22 to 26, we have this unique partial healing of the blind man at Bethsaida. At first, under the touch of Jesus, he is only partially healed. He can see people walking around as though they were trees. So Jesus tries again, and this time in verse 25, his, the blind man's eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, I don't think that Jesus messed up the first time around. I'm sure that Jesus did this uh, perfectly deliberately to prepare our hearts and minds for what follows uh, now with Peter. Because when Peter says in verse 29, you are the Christ, Jesus, you are the Christ, he was only partially right, just as the blind man only had partial sight. And my feeling is that some of us today probably suffer from the same problem of partial understanding. So as we explore these verses this morning, I want to open up to you two visions. Firstly, a complete vision of Christ. And secondly, a complete vision of the Christian. So let's first uh, take a look at the first of these. We need a complete vision of Christ. So when Peter said, you are the Christ, meaning anointed one, the one upon whom the Spirit of God falls, he was right. And in Matthew's version of this event, Peter was congratulated. He's honoured with a new nickname, Peter, the Rock, and he's told that the church will be built on this foundation. But here, Mark, who was probably a friend of Peter's, doesn't record any of that. Quite a different picture emerges. Firstly, Jesus warns the disciples not to repeat to anyone what had, been sent, what had been said in verse 30. And secondly, he tells them that the Son of Man must go and suffer. And thirdly, when Peter tries to tell Jesus he is wrong, it's always a dangerous tactic trying to do that, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. It's not a pretty sight, is it? You see, Jesus knew that Peter's vision here of the Christ was incomplete. Yes, he got the anointed one bit right, but he had wrong what Christ had come to do. You see, as we know, Peter thinks Christ is going to come in power and to do away all that is wrong in Israel. He thinks that he establish a righteous judgment and have everybody living lives according to the law once again. In other words, Peter was looking for an earthly victor, he wants Jesus to be a popular leader, the hero of the people, powerful. 
This is the Christ on Peter's terms, a Christ set on the things of men. In contrast, the Christ that Jesus presents in verse 31 is one who must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. In other words, everyone and anyone who is, un, who is, who is important at the time. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. You see, there's no option, no choice, no easier way. The son of man must suffer, be killed, and rise again. That is God's way. That is what the real Christ, the one who is really anointed by the self-giving, self-sacrificial, totally loving spirit of God, must do. Since that is what God would do. Therefore, Jesus, the Christ, he must do it too. It is only as, as we understand the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Christ that we understand the price at which we have been bought You see, that is the price paid by God so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be saved and have a new relationship with God the Father, experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and enjoy eternal life. Was that cheap? Was it a pound land or a pre-mark purchase? No, the price paid by God was the cost of himself in Jesus, his own son. He gave his son. Because the price of freedom from the judgment for our sin, yours and mine, is not cheap. If it were cheap, God could say, it doesn't matter. I love them anyway. Sin's not so bad, really. They're all quite a good bunch. They're okay. There's no point in punishing their sin. But that is cheap. That is pounds land grace. And it's certainly no justice. No, the grace that saves us, you and me, is the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the suffering, abandonment, death, and resurrection of God himself in the man, Christ Jesus. You see, Peter, later on, finally worked it out. In 1 Peter 1, he writes this, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That is the true price paid for our salvation. We are expensive. God did that for us. And it's worth remembering that as we think about our involvement in the passion for life. God's grace does not come cheap. So when we're worried about the cost of mission in the church budget or the cost of buying an extra ticket for the Danet breakfast so that we can give it away to somebody we know or whether we simply can't be bothered to go out on the cold March evening whether to pray for Passion for Life on Wednesday evening or to attend an event perhaps we need to remember the price that paid was paid by God it wasn't cheap it cost him his son the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. That is the complete vision of Christ that Peter missed, and we miss it at our peril. Secondly, we need a complete vision of the Christian. Verse 34 says, Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone 
would come after me, he must, and there it is, that word, must, again, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, early Christians were known as the followers of the way, the followers of the way of Christ. And Christ's way is down a road of suffering, rejection, and ultimately death. And I want to suggest to you again that sometimes we only have a partial understanding of what it means to be followers of Christ. And that, in some ways, can lead us down a road to compromise. Let me explain. Sometimes we perhaps see the Christian life as something like a ladder of commitment. The first step on the ladder is relatively easy. You sign up for the experience. You mount the first rung. As you progress in your faith, you progress to the second, the third, the fourth rung of the ladder until you're really quite spiritual and you're quite high up that ladder. Some people, you're told, even reach the top. See, there are plenty of voices out there which tell us that we can become a Christian and we can experience joy and peace and comfort and victory over sin in our lives. And we say, yes, we'll have some of that. Where do I sign up? So you join a church, you learn the new songs, you get used to listening to the preacher going on and on and on. And on the whole, it's fine, because you make some new friends and the experience is good. But then things start to get a bit trickier. Somebody suggests that you join a small group where you might be expected to pray and open up and tell people about difficult things you'd rather really keep to yourself. Well, maybe that's okay. You're brave. You can cope. And you find you quite enjoy praying with others. But then you notice that the Bible you're reading and hearing preached expects you to stop being angry, start giving money, and to be more careful in your relationships. And now it seems like a bit harder work. Your lungs are beginning to work overtime. But you keep going. Then you find, actually, after a while, the music at church gets a bit tiresome. The preacher is on his hobby horse again, and the coffee's cold. But even worse than that, there is something in your life which you know is wrong, and it's really hard to give that up. What then? You're committed. But are you that committed? Perhaps I'll just rest here a moment, on the fourth rung. I'm a Christian. Look how far I've got. But I'm feeling a bit of vertigo now, and I'm not sure I can commit to anything more right now. Is that your Christian life? Christ here offers an alternative. But initially, it's not very attractive. And the shocking thing is that Jesus says that this is the road for all of us. Not just the super keenies, not just the true disciples. Because in verse 34, he says, Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said to all of them, the crowd, as well as his intimate friends, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. You see, this is not the road to compromise. This is the road to Calvary. And all Christians are called by Christ to follow it. You see, from this point onwards in Mark's Gospel, Jesus and his disciples leave Galilee, where they spent most of their time up till now. And they start this very long and circuitous route to Jerusalem, where he must suffer, die, and we know he will later rise again. It is his road to Calvary. But Mark chapter 8, verse 34, is an invitation to all of us to join Jesus on that same road to Calvary which by its very nature involves denying self, suffering, and perhaps in the most extreme cases, even death. 
Does that sound inviting? Does our heart respond, yes, I'll have some of that? Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to suffer. I certainly don't want to die. You know what? I don't even want to deny myself. In fact, in many ways, I'd be much happier on the road to compromise, where there's this nice, easy introduction, and I can decide when enough is enough. I'll just stop here, right, thank you. right here, thank you very much. Why? Because I'm a sinner, plain and simple. And part of me is, a lazy, is lazy. Do you remember the old word, the word of sloth? I am full of sloth. I don't want to change. I'm comfortable how I am. Instead, Jesus calls us to get on to the road to Calvary. So how is that different? Well, the hard part is right at the beginning, and then we must go on suffering until we die. I can hear you thinking, go on, sell it hard, Mark. It's a good thing that Mark's not speaking at any of the Passion for Life events, because they'd be queuing up around the blocks to sign up, wouldn't they? Or maybe not. But Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, when we become a Christian and get onto the right road, we're not just setting out to see how far our commitment will take us. No, we're taking a decision there and then to say, I deny myself. I'm sorry for what I've done. I no longer want to do what I want to do. I give myself to you, Lord Jesus. Jesus, be Lord of my life. Be king of my life. Rule over my life. We've got to put aside our pride, our self-sufficiency, our self-belief, and we have to say to Jesus, Lord, without you, I can do nothing. I want to change. Make me like you. And that hurts. That really hurts. But that is what you do when you become a Christian. What would stop you from signing up for that? Where is it uh, because you don't yet trust Christ? You don't yet trust Christ to, to follow him along this difficult road? Well, we all need to believe what Isaiah 48 and verse 17 says. It says, the Lord is our Redeemer who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you on the way you should go. Or perhaps you think there must be a better way. There must be a better way. Well, Jesus once asked that question for himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Lord, if there is a better way, let it be so. But the answer came back, no, there is no better way. And so Jesus set his face to Calvary. And that's what we have to do too. Now, of course, in some cultures and times and places, this road might lead to physical suffering, the suffering of persecution. But there's another form of suffering well known to many a mature Christian. And that is what the theologians call the suffering of indwelling sin. The indwelling sin of believers. Now, if anyone tells you that by becoming a Christian, you will immediately be set free from sin, then they are lying. I can never understand why people are so disappointed when they meet Christians, discover their sin, and want to call us hypocrites. Because that's only a partial understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Of course we get angry and we get jealous and we fail to be generous to others in so many ways. We are sinners still. Paul puts it like this, Romans 7 and verse 21. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, 
evil is right there with me. Paul, evil is right there with him. And it wasn't during the time of backsliding or when he wasn't sure about what was right. He wanted to do good. But evil was right there with him. You see, this Jekyll and Hyde feeling is all part of being a Christian. It's not hypocrisy unless we try to hide it. It's the pain of our internal struggle with ongoing sin. And if you're a Christian and you don't feel that way, then perhaps, perhaps you need a bit of a wake-up call in a way. Uh, Chris Lungard has written this book. It's called The Enemy Within, Straight Talk About the Power and Defeat of Sin. And in there, he puts it like this. You can order it at the bookstore at the back. It is one thing to listen to a lecture about AIDS, how it spreads, what it does to the body, how invincible it is. It is another thing to hear your doctor say to you, HIV positive, I'm sorry. But few people have come to terms with the law of sin. If more people had, we would hear more complaints about it in our prayers, see more struggling against it, and find less of its fruit in the world. You know, I don't hear a great deal of talk about our sin over coffee at church. I hear about people's achievements, but not a lot about our struggle against sin. Well, now you're all suitably depressed. But we have to remember there is another reality too. And that is that although sin lives on in our human bodies, the very act of setting out on this road to Calvary with Jesus means that we have already been changed inside and we are on our way to glory. Yes, we continue to sin, but we don't want to sin. It's no longer our master. We belong to another master. When we fall, it cuts us deep. It's not something we can ignore or brush away because we know that we've been bought at that price, an expensive price, the blood of Jesus. And if that's you, well, welcome, fellow traveller, onto the road of Calvary. Let's walk together because that's what part, partly this church is all about and all churches are all about, is walking together on the road to Calvary. But we also need to remember where this road is taking us. And that's why in verses 25 to 36, if you look down at them, Jesus gives us three reasons for following the road to Calvary. First, in verse 35, 35, he says, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Yes, following the road to Calvary is losing your life because you have to deny self. You're making Jesus Lord as you remember the price he paid. But this road takes you to Calvary and beyond it to glory. It's no ladder of commitment, no road to compromise. It's a gradual route to glory. You see, your life is always work in progress. J.R. Packer uses a brilliant uh, illustration about this factory, a large factory, a large industrial site full of many different buildings at different stages of, uh, of age and usefulness. Now imagine that these buildings are one by one being pulled down and new and better buildings are being made in their place using some of the materials that belong to what had been demolished beforehand. And whilst this goes on, the business that the factory is running has to carry on as usual, except for all the various temporary arrangements that they have to make, moving things around so that a new back, a building can be knocked down and another one can be made. And the constant changes are frustrating for all of those who are working within the factory. 
as they try their hardest to try and keep normal customer service going and the production going, especially because they're not always told in advance when a building's about to be knocked down. But in fact, the architect has a grand master plan for all stages of this rebuilding project. And there is a most competent manager overseeing every step. And, and on a day-to-day -day basis, there always seems to prove to be a way to keep the business going, even though things aren't as perfect as everybody would like them to be. You see, our lives are work in progress, like that industrial site. God is the architect. He has the plan. And Christ, through the Holy Spirit, directs operations on a day-to-day -day basis. And that will happen in our lives until one day our life will be made perfect. And it's not only that we won't want to sin, but we will be completely unable to sin. Paul, despite suffering with evil at his side, is able to say in his old age in his second letter to Timothy in chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, The time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Jesus says we have to lose our life in order to receive our crown of righteousness, which means we will not be able to sin anymore. Secondly, in verse 36, what good is it for the man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Verse 37, well, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Just think back to Peter's Messiah once again. Peter wanted Jesus to conquer the world and to win the acclaim of religious leaders and crowds alike, to be famous, popular, powerful, to gain the world, in other words. But Jesus knew that to do that, to be that kind of Christ, would mean forfeiting the salvation of the world. And we could do the same. We could seek our own glory, our own influence, our own power, our own way of doing things, and yet forfeit our own salvation. What can we give in exchange for our soul? That's the point, isn't it? The answer is nothing. The price has already been paid, an expensive price paid by Christ. There's nothing more that we can add. And finally, in verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So there we are in the fourth rung of our ladder of commitment, road of compromise, thinking ourselves to be good Christians and yet suffering from that terrible vertical, vertigo. We slip and we fall and somehow we break our head open on the concrete below. We go to meet our maker and we are met by Christ who is ashamed of us. And that's when we realize we never reached the fifth rung or the sixth rung, or the seventh rung, which involves speaking confidently about Christ. And we never quite took the Bible seriously. Our commitment didn't quite stretch that far. And Jesus says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory. How much better would it be to hear these words from Luke 19 when you reach glory? Well done my good servant. Well done, my good servant. You have accompanied me on that long and circuitous route to Calvary. You have suffered with me. You were cut to the deep at your failure. You have battled with sin and you have overcome with the help of the Spirit. Well done, my good and trustworthy servant. 
In fact, from John 15, I no longer call you servant, I call you a friend. Father, this is Mark, a friend. I know him. Yes, he's a failure. Yes, he's been caught up in sin since birth, but he's joined me on the road. He is mine. I bought him at a price. His companionship on that road cost me my life on earth in accordance with your will. So now Mark is mine. He is perfect. He is unable to sin anymore. Pass him his crown of righteousness. The final verse of our reading, chapter 9, verse 1, is tricky. Uh, Somehow, if we think of it as the uh, return of Jesus, we want Jesus to come sooner or the disciples to live longer, one of the two. It doesn't seem to work out some ways. But actually, if you look at it, what follows is the transfiguration. A small glimpse of the glory of Jesus right at the beginning of this road to Calvary, right at the outset of this road to Calvary, like a signpost, a pointer, an encouragement for the road ahead. Later, at the end of the road for Jesus' life on earth, some of the disciples stand on the hillside near Jerusalem and they watch as Jesus ascends into heaven. And in Daniel chapter 7, we get a glimpse, a partial sighting of what is seen fully on the other side of that divide. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. That's the glory seen at the end of the road, which a transfiguration points us to right at the beginning. The disciples stood and watched, their own destiny of glory being fulfilled before their very eyes, because they had accompanied Jesus on that road. They'd gone with him to Calvary and beyond. And we, if we are Christians, are going there too. And that is good news. I have to ask, which road are you on? Now, some of you have been coming to church for a while now. To some extent, you are committed, but you're not quite sure how much. Perhaps now is the time that you need to make that final decision to deny yourself, to pick up your cross and to start out on the road to Calvary with everything that goes with it. There's no third way. There's no easy answer. We either pick up our cross or we risk the Son of Man being ashamed of us when we come in to the Father's glory. And we have to ask, what's it going to be? Let's pray. Father, hard words this morning. Hard words, but also encouraging words. Lord, we want to make sure that all of us are on that road to Calvary, the road that causes much suffering and pain, but leads to glory and leads to a time when none of us will be able to fall into sin. Lord, help us by your Spirit. Give us the power that we need to follow you wherever it may lead us. Amen.